you know, one thing that I've always really been adamant about is just like clear communication. I don't like to surprise people. I don't like to be surprised. I don't, you know, no model wants to show up on set and be like, surprise, it's anal. It's like, you know what I mean? I mean, like everybody wants to know what they're doing and be prepared for that. And I certainly don't ever want to be in a situation where the girl feels like she's being made to do something she doesn't want to do. Welcome back to another episode. I'm very excited to have Holly Randall with me. She is a porn director, photographer, and podcaster, fellow podcaster. And um, she has a very interesting background. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a lot of things, including the differences between porn and real life, and of which there are many differences. <laughs> and um, I would love to actually just start with a little bit about your background, Holly, because you kind of grew up in the adult industry. And I'm curious what that was like for you as a kid and how it affected your, your life, your social life in particular. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. Um, so my mother was Suze Randall, who was considered a pioneer for women behind the camera in the adult industry. She was active from like the late 1970s to the uh, early 2000s. Um, she's been retired for a while now, but she, you know, is somebody that um, taught me everything that I know. And her and my father have been together since their early twenties and they basically built their business together and I'm their first child. And I was born um, when my mom was staff photographer at Hustler Magazine. My birth was actually announced in Hustler Magazine, which is kind of funny. So yeah, it was definitely something that was, you know, a part of my life, but it also wasn't a part of my life. My parents uh, were wonderful. You know, I'm kind of one of those people who, I believe is testament to the fact that you can be raised by people who work in the sex work industry and still come out like a really balanced individual and have a really strong family relationship. I have a younger brother and a younger sister, neither of who have anything to do with the adult industry and we're all incredibly close. Um, so yeah, so, you know, it was something that I always I kind of always knew what they did for a living because obviously the most common question is when did you find out what your parents did? Because a lot of people believe that it's like this big secret and then you have to reveal it to your children. And then there's this, you know, crazy reveal and um, you know, how do you handle all of that? But you know, my parents are very, I don't know if it, it comes from the fact that like neither of them are American <laughs> Um, my dad's from South Africa, my mom's from England. And so they were just never ashamed of what they did for a living. And so they didn't pass any of that sexual shame and stigma onto me, you know, because we, you know, our intrinsic beliefs are usually built by our, by our parents, right? Like we believe what our parents tell us to believe when we're young. And, you know, my parents were always like the female bodies, new bodies, a beautiful thing. And, um, you know, at a young age, obviously they weren't like showing me their work or taking me to set or anything like that. I believe that, you know, my earliest understanding was, okay, well, mom and dad make pictures and movies for grownups and I'm not a grownup. So, you know, I wasn't allowed to go into the office. Um, you know, there were areas that were, there was material that was out of bounds to me and that was fine because, you know, what was important to me as a child was that my parents loved me and they supported me and they made me feel valued. And, you know, they were very active in my life. They read me a bedtime story every night. We had dinner together every night. We went to the beach on the weekends. We went on holidays. Like 
I had a very normal childhood. Um, and it wasn't until I was a little bit older, um, you know, like elementary school, high school, elementary school, really, where, you know, the subject of what my mom did for a living would come up sometimes just because people would naturally ask or I remember having specifically a school project where you were supposed to write an essay about what your parents did for a living. <laughs> and that was kind of when, you know, I was faced with the like, okay, so, you know, what mom and dad do is not bad, but it's not appropriate to talk about, you know, with other children and some people might, you know, react strangely to it. So we're going to, this is the story we're going to build. Your mother's a glamour photographer. She had done some mainstream stuff. She shot Robert Palmer. Um, she shot this band called Revenge. Uh, she did this like swimsuit uh, catalog. So she did have some mainstream jobs that I could allude to. It was just like, oh, mom's a glamour photographer and she shoots these things. And that was usually kind of the end of it. So um, there was definitely like a level of secrecy that I had to maintain um, when I got older. But I don't think it affected me in any kind of negative way. You know, something I really like about what you're describing is <clears throat> healthy boundaries. And I think that for a lot of people, you know, we were discussing this a little before the recording, but people from say religious backgrounds or backgrounds where there was a lot of sexual repression, it, I would imagine from their perspective, it would feel impossible for <laughs> There to be a home where the parents were in the adult industry and and there were boundaries. Like I, I would imagine it would be outside the scope of that person's mm -hmm. understanding. But what you're describing is normal, healthy boundaries, right? That this is this is what we do for a living. It's only going to be appropriate to talk about more when you're older. Mommy and daddy make films for grown-ups and you're not a grown-up. It's like that's normal. It feels very normal and healthy and easy to grasp. And I'm wondering, you know, since so many people do grow up in homes where sex is weird and uncomfortable and awkward for the parents to talk about, and it's kind of scary and people do grow up with a lot of shame. What was it like growing up in a sex positive household? Like how, how does that work? I would imagine a lot of people can't even imagine <laughs> what that would, what that would be like. Like what, what was your experience growing up in a sex positive house? Well, my question would be, what is people's experience growing up in a sex negative house? Like that also like, doesn't make sense to me. Like, what is it like to have parents tell you that like masturbation is a sin and you're going to go to hell and sex is bad and dirty. And, you know, you have to save your virginity for marriage. What's that like? Because, you know, normalcy is relative, right? To me, like I had a totally normal childhood. So I don't know. It wasn't like anything. It was just like normal. My parents were just normal to me. So, so yeah, <laughs> it's like, I don't even know how to answer that question. It was, it was good, I guess, because I don't have weird sexual hangups and, um, you know, so I'm not afraid remember, to talk about sex. So, well, do you remember your mom or your dad having the sex talk with you or was it just sort of, you always knew what sex was? Did they have you know, picture books when you were young? Like, how did they deal with educating you about sex? What, what what did that feel like for you? So that's funny. I don't remember them actually sitting down ever like having the sex talk with me, but they did give me a book when I was a kid that I was obsessed with. Um, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's called, Where Did I Come From? Yes, my mom had that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's such a good book. And I remember reading it. And it was like, you know, and it's a, it's a very honest book and it tries to explain sex in terms that a child would understand. And this is one passage that I just found so fascinating. It's like, well, what does sex feel like? Well, sex feels like being tickled with a feather, but much nicer. And then, and then it was like, well, if sex is so great. Why don't people have it all the time? Well, sex is like jumping rope. It's really fun when you're doing it, but you get tired after a while. <laughs> Yes. And also <clears throat> the people in the book uh, don't have sort of picture perfect bodies. They're not no. very normal looking middle mm -hmm. aged folks that mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of like, oh, good. It's normalizing 
regular bodies. It just, if it does feel very healthy, I kind of, uh, that, that, that's funny that we read the same book. That's great. Yeah. I think um, a lot of people have read that book, but like, forget about it. Yeah. You know? I love it. So it seemed, it seemed like a sane way to learn about sex, that mm-hmm. I recall. Um, and so, and then, so for example, like, did you have open conversations about masturbation? Did your mom say like, let's get you your first vibrator? Were you, you know, involved in that at all? Like, was she involved in your, in your life? Like you learning your body at all? No, no. It's funny because, um, you know, yes, my parents were like sex positive and open, but they weren't sex positive. I think in like the way that we see sex positivity now where it's coupled with education. Um, you know, I think her generation, which was like the free love, you know, the sixties, my parents were swingers. It was just kind of like sex is great and it's not a big deal, but I don't think that like they really thought about educating, you know, their children or really anybody. That's not something that that came into, I think, their mindset at all. So we never, I don't think we ever talked about masturbation, but they did recognize, you know, when I was 16 and got my first real boyfriend that I was having sex with him. Um, And so, you know, they took me to get birth control pretty much right away. They weren't unrealistic about it. They certainly didn't shame me about it. Um, You know, they were just like, look, you're, you're going to do what you're going to do. Um, and we respect that, but you know, you have to be careful and use contraceptives. So condoms and birth control, and we'll help you with that. And lo and behold, I didn't have my first child till I was 42. So <laughs> must've worked. <laughs> <laughs> Muzzle top. Muzzle top. Um, okay. So great. So that's Holly growing up. So now we'll fast forward to your own experience as a director. And um, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about how you, how you got into specifically directing and what that has been like for you um, before we sort of talk about what you've learned on set, especially, you know, as our, our theme about the differences between porn and real life. Um, how did you get into it? Well, I mean, this is probably pretty obvious, but I started working for my parents I was uh, actually at Brooks Institute of Photography because my dream was to become a photographer. I was going to work in the fashion world. Um, And it was like about, I was about halfway through my schooling there. I wasn't really enjoying the school. It was kind of stifled. And my parents had just, this is kind of the beginning of the internet. They had just launched their website, Suze.net, which is one of like the first, like, you know, big adult photography sites online. And they were just doing insanely well, like, it was just crazy. And so they asked if I wanted to come home and and help them out with the website for a little bit. And I was ready for a change. So I moved from Santa Barbara back to LA. Um, I switched schools. I actually ended up going to UCLA and and graduating with a degree in English literature there, which, you know, obviously I never did anything with, but it's nice. looks nice on my wall. Um, And, uh, and so the intention was just that I was going to stay and, you know, work for them a little, for a little while in this kind of transitional period. And then I was going to maybe go to school and become an English teacher. Um, and I found that I really enjoyed the environment that my mom cultivated in adult. I think that if I had experienced the adult industry in a different way, because there's a lot, you know, a lot of people think that the adult industry is one specific thing. Everybody's the same. Every environment's the same. Every set's the same. And it couldn't be further from the truth. There's a lot of different people. There's a lot of different kinds of productions, different kinds of content, different kinds of like set cultures. And my mom's was very like female positive. Um, She was all about, you know, making sure the model felt good. My mom used to be a model. So she understood what it was like to be behind the camera, which I think was so valuable. And so it was very much about making sure the model felt good. She felt safe. She felt beautiful. She felt glamorous. And, you know, her content was really high quality. That's what she was known for. So we were producing this really beautiful stuff, you know, and just people just took their clothes off and had sex, but like the styling and everything. So So the environment was really fun. And I was like, I actually really enjoy this. This feels like the right fit. And and so I stayed. That's great. And when you were sort of branching out, did, I mean, I would imagine you sort of assistant directed or you were mentored a bit by your mom. And then did you, was it, 
was it nerve wracking when you went out on your own? Was it, was it like, oh my gosh, I'm doing my first shoot. Like, did you have all of those nerves? And you Oh, totally. Too? So, you know, back in my mom's heyday and especially at the beginning of the internet, video wasn't as important. Um, pictures did really well because bandwidth um, and download speeds couldn't really support video. Um, it's a totally different story today, but you could not stream video back in like 1998 or 2000. It was just not possible. So photos did really well because, you know, they were smaller size and, and people could view those and magazines were still, you know, doing really well. And so she really, she had directed some stuff back in the seventies, but she didn't enjoy it. She really liked being a photographer. So when we started to kind of like, when I started to branch out from her was when I was seeing that the technology was getting better, bandwidth was getting better, speeds were getting better, and video was starting to become more important. And she really didn't want to change. Uh, she really didn't want to start shooting video. It was a big battle. We fought about it a lot, but I saw where the industry was going. And so she didn't actually teach me anything about video. She taught me everything about photography and everything about cultivating a good set culture and treating the models, all that stuff. But when it came to video, I, I, I taught myself, I just picked up a camera and I just started shooting and I just taught myself and trial and error and watching other people and asking other people questions and just being curious. Um, yeah, I'm pretty much completely self-taught, but when I started to branch out and go off on my own, yeah, it was scary, you know, because I no longer had this kind of like, you know, I didn't have my mom's name anymore it was you know and back in the day it was like holly randall suze randall's daughter it wasn't like you know now i'm on my own and actually kind of sadly um a lot of like the new talent and new directors don't even know who my mom is um but you know it took me a while to step out from under from behind her shadow so yeah and i'm i i, I really like what you said about the culture on set and i've worked in film, not in adult film, but I've worked in film. And I think that there is this, I think because of sexual repression, there is this idea that sort of porn is monolithic. Like just there's the, the porn industry and there's just, it's just this big thing. That's all the same. And it's interesting. Cause I, I don't think people feel the same way about the film industry. I think they understand that different sets are different and different directors are different and there's different culture on different sets but for some reason, it feels like people do think it's, all, it's sort of all the same in the adult mm -hmm. film industry. And I like what you said about the um, the focus on the performers feeling safe. And specifically, you know, I mean, your mom was doing a lot of still photography, but the model feeling glamorous or feeling how the model is feeling or how the performers are feeling as a direction feels healthy to me. <laughs> like that mm -hmm a really good focus, not necessarily, you know, explicit acts or what's our, you know, parameters, but how are, how are these people feeling? How do they feel about what's happening? And so I'm wondering as you started shooting, um, it sounds like you carried that sort of culture with you. And I'm curious, you know, because most people aren't familiar with how adult film works. How does it work in terms of consent or what's going to happen in a scene? Is everything, we'll just talk about your sets. This isn't everything in the film industry, but for you, how does it work in terms of we're going to do this and then we're going to do this? Or is it uh, do your thing? <laughs> the camera will follow you. Like, how do you, how do you handle that? So it's interesting that you say that because that has actually changed pretty significantly just over the last year. So it, it depends on the client. So, you know, now I still have my own production company that I shoot for, but I mostly shoot for other clients. Specifically, I mostly shoot actually for one particular client, Twisties, some stuff for browsers, but I used to also shoot for Playboy. I used to shoot for Naughty America. I used to shoot for Wicked, like Adam and Eve. I've shot for almost everybody. So every, every client's different in terms of like what, what they want. Um, so, you know, one thing that I've always really been adamant about is just like clear communication. I don't like to surprise people. I don't like to be surprised. I don't, you know, no model wants to show up on set and be like, surprise, it's anal. It's like, you know what I mean? I mean, like everybody wants to know what they're doing and be prepared for that. 
And I certainly don't ever want to be in a situation where the girl feels like she's being made to do something she doesn't want to do. That makes me feel really shitty. And those are the kinds of things that would make me not want to do this job. If I, if I felt that I was pushing girls to do things that they regret, I would not be doing this because I can't sleep at night if I feel like that's what I'm doing. I know some directors are very much like that because they feel like pushing boundaries will get the best out of their models or they'll get the one thing that other people can't get because they coerced a girl into something she didn't really want to do. Um, that's not something that, that I um, believe in. And uh, no, it, sounds I, it just feels, it, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. feels really gross. Yep. And I've been in situations like that where, um, you know, this is, this is pretty common. There are some wonderful agents in the adult industry and there's some really shitty ones and it's not entirely uncommon for a model to show up on set and the agent didn't tell her what we were doing, didn't forward her the call sheet, didn't like, you know, miscommunicated something or the girl didn't want to work that day or couldn't work that day, but the agent made her go to set because he didn't want her to cancel and he wouldn't get his fee, et cetera. And, you know, having to either change the scene or send the girl home because it just wasn't the right fit for her or she wasn't in like a mental space to be able to do it. And that's hard because, you know, you're going to lose out on a lot of money when you do that, because you still got to pay the crew. You still got to pay the location. Um, so, so, you know, I never want to be in that situation. So I always really try to make sure that communication is absolutely clear in the last year, we kind of, the adult industry kind of had this second, like me too wave, which you would only really know if you were like kind of on, on like porno Twitter, as they call it, where, you know, I think a lot of girls with these, the only fans and the personal content platforms finally felt um, that they were independent enough, financially independent enough that they could actually start being honest about their experience with some producers and there was a big call out on directors and producers who pushed boundaries, um, who made girls feel uncomfortable, who took advantage of people. Like there was a big call out and it was a culling of the herd. There was a lot of directors who either got fired or basically just got blacklisted from the industry. So, um, so after that happened, a lot of brands, including the ones that I work for browsers and twisties, uh, decided to come out with some very specific uh, new additions to set requirements to make sure that, you know, these kinds of things wouldn't happen on their sets. Uh, one of them was a talent assistant. So there's a specific female, she has to be a female, who's hired to be on set and she's literally just there to advocate for the model. So she's there just to make sure that the model is comfortable, that the model is fed, she is hydrated, that if there's anything in the scene that she feels uncomfortable talking to the director about, maybe she's intimidated, whatever, um, that she has this person who's literally just there for her to talk to, um, to kind of confer with. And we also have a boundary checklist, which I've kind of been advocating for for a while. The BDSM community is really good at this because they shoot you know, these really kind of intense scenes and they need to make sure that you know, everybody's on board. So basically it's this checklist that each performer goes over, signs, reads to each other. We get this all on camera. Um, and it's basically like fisting, no, spitting, no, choking, yes. Spanking, yes. How hard, like one to 10, like that kind of thing. We discuss safe words. We discuss nonverbal communications, like kind of a double tap on the leg. If you're going too hard, um, all of these things. And, uh, I feel like that's just really made sets, you know, so much safer. Um, I mean, I always felt, you know, that I didn't really have a problem with that, but you know, that's probably kind of foolish on my part, you know, because I'm a woman, I feel like I, I think I can read the other girl. I think I know how she's feeling, but that's not entirely true. You know, some people are afraid to speak up even to me, even though I try to, you know, cultivate this, this culture on set where people feel safe, but you know, some girls are, are young and they're intimidated. And so it's just really important to make sure that, you know, we really try to like cross all our T's and dot all our I's in terms of making sure that 
the talent, um, you know, has as much power as, as possible on set. Yeah. I like what you said there because I, I, especially the, um, yeah, just the knowledge and the awareness, right. It's like, I think when we're in a position of power, any position of power, we, we underestimate how much it takes <laughs> to talk to us, right. When we're the mm-hmm. manager, we think, Oh, we're, t- we're such a chill, cool manager. I'm so approachable. Yeah. Always what yeah. And then when you're in the other position, it's like, well, I don't want her to uh, think I'm difficult, right? I want to be invited back. I want to get mm-hmm. a good review. I want, you know, there's so many other factors going on for someone, whether it's just someone in a sexual encounter with someone they really like, or when there's also their job is on the line or their pay and things like that. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are performers that have performed on a day when they didn't want to because they needed the money. That's something that mm-hmm. happened every industry, but then you add sex and sexuality on top of that. And there is this just other layer of vulnerability that, Mm -hmm. that is added. That is so, uh, what's the word pronounced now that we live in a world where everything's available online, including your face, right? If you're not, if you're doing a scene without a mask or you're doing a scene where that's your face, that's your, your image, that's kind of forever away. Right. So there's just, there's a lot happening there. Um, I like the, the addition of, you know, uh, spanking. Yes. How hard, right. So the specificity of here are my boundaries, but also here are my boundaries and here is a safe word or the double tap on the leg. I really like that of a nonverbal during a scene so that you can keep going, but also have adjustments made. Um, and I'm curious, you know, do you, cast your own performers or do this, the, the clients send you the performance? Like, how does that work? And are there performers that you've bonded with that you invite back again and again and have a relationship with, and you feel like you like working with? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. And again, it just depends on the client. So for twisties and browsers, they definitely tell me who they want. Um, You know, and they take my feedback into consideration if they, you know, request a girl who I don't feel is as well suited for that role or who I, I feel is actually not um, in a good headspace to be working really at all at the moment. Um, they'll, they'll take that into consideration and they'll change their request. Uh, when I sh- shot for Wicked, I got to choose the entire cast. It was, it was all my decision, which was really nice, but yeah, I mean, there's, de- I definitely have favorites. I mean, we all do. Um, you know, there are some girls that I would shoot like every day if I could, you know, they just make my job so much easier. Um, so, so yeah, so it's just, it just depends on the client, but, um, you know, the girls that, that really love their job, that are professional, that are on time, that are, um, you know, really, um, empowered by their job and and you can tell really enjoy it. Those are the kind of people that you want to work with over and over again. Yeah, totally. So um, I do want to make sure that we get to these differences between porn and real life. And, you know, we were discussing one of them before we started, which had to do with penis size. And (laughs) I would love to start with that one. And then maybe just, yeah, whatever comes to mind of what are some of the, the differences between porn and real life that people who consume porn, who watch porn might not realize? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, and again, like porn is so many different things. So I think that when, when I say like, well, porn is like this, I think we're just kind of thinking about what we call like mainstream porn, like the bigger companies, the, the most common stuff that you might see like on Pornhub, for example, which is, you know, where pretty much everybody goes to get their porn. Um, but, uh, so penis size. Okay. Cause obviously this is something that I get, you know, asked a lot about because a large percentage of my audience is men and, you know, men are pretty insecure about their penis size. So porn is generally a caricature of sex. It's, it's bigger than life and it's, it's not real life for the most part. And so everything's bigger, like the tits, the butts, the penises. Um, now the size of a man's penis in porn actually needs to be big for like specific logistical reasons. So in order to properly be able to shoot penetration and get it shot well, a long penis is kind of important because you need a penis that's long enough 
so that it's it you can see the penetration in the vagina and there's enough space between the bodies so that you can actually shoot it especially if the girl's like a really big butt um because when when guys do uh, their positions, they, they do what we call opening up to camera. They fuck kind of sideways. Um, they turn their hip so that you can see the penetration. And if you have a smaller penis, your penis is going to keep popping out when you do that because it's not long enough to stay in the vagina. So the longer the penis is, the easier it is to get that, that penetration shot. So that's kind of like a big reason why porn penises are so big now they can be definitely too big. Um, you know, there are some guys whose dicks are so big that like girls won't work with them because it's just painful for them. And when I ask female performers, you know, kind of off camera or on camera on my podcast where we get very honest about things and I ask them about their penis size, they almost always say they prefer average, like six to seven inches. I think honestly, average to be fair is like five and a half inches. So when I ask a porn, when it, so when a porn star says average, I think just add an inch, but like six to six to seven inches, which is a really good size. It's not the eight, nine, 10 inches that you might see in some of these monster penises in porn. Um, but yeah, you know, because those big dicks, they're, they're, it's a lot of wear and tear on the body. And so in real life, girls really tend to prefer a regular size penis. And, you know, they always say too, it's like not the size of it. It's what you can do with it. You don't need to have a huge penis to be a great lover. I would just like to corroborate that from my sex research. <laughs> like everything that was just said, especially, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think this is probably another point that you'll make, but in a regular sexual encounter, a man is not hard for the whole time in a regular sexual encounter, it's very normal for him to go in and out of hardness. And I think that that's, uh, if I were a man watching porn, I would feel like I have to be really big and I have to be really hard for a long time. And, um, the really, the really big part is super intimidating because, it's the same as breast size. Well, actually, it's not the same as breast size because women, if they really want to, and if they have the resources, which not all women do, they can get breast augmentation. They can make their breasts bigger or or smaller, depending on what they're wanting. Um, but there's really very little choice that a man has about this particular appendage. And there's a lot of stress and anxiety that goes along with it. But everything I've seen in my sex research suggests that to your point, it's it's really not about the size. It's really about what the man does with it. And I also think that what I've seen in my sex research is that all of the other things around penetration are so important and I think so forgotten by men. They, they, they're really focused on this act of penetration of this is the culmination and this is sort of everything that I have to perform in. But really the sex research suggests like, how much time he spends with her beforehand, the buildup. We we talk about foreplay as if it's unimportant, <laughs> but actually, if you look at the research for many women, it's the most important part of the encounter. And sometimes for some women, penetration might even hurt. So it's like oral is the big deal for that woman. And 70% of women can't come through intercourse. So there's a lot around sex that I think, uh, I, you know, I'm curious as someone who's in the industry, do you think that that is what is reinforced in porn? That this is like, this is the thing that we're doing. You know, this is the, the, the most important sexual act. Like, do you feel like that as a director, it's sort of like you would want to do other things, but this is what the clients keep asking for. Like, how does that work? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, and, and again, it depends on the porn, um, you know, the companies that I shoot for, I mean, well, first of all, Twisties is all like girl, girl, lesbian porn. So that doesn't count, but let's say browsers, right? Like one of the most well-known boy, girl sites. I mean, they're definitely all about the penetration. I mean, you know, we joke about, you know, the browser's face, which is this surprised look that like every model has at this like key moment, they call them ad moments. And it's always like the moment of penetration. It's like really important, but you know, these companies um, like, 
browsers, which is run by MindGeek, they run on data. So they look at, because they also own Pornhub, they look at what people watch on Pornhub and they look at like when the traffic goes up and when it comes down, the most watched videos, the parts that are replayed um, most often. So they have like an incredible amount of data, which informs what they make. So this is what people are generally looking for when they go to these tube sites and they look at free porn. So that's, you know, what they're creating. Now, there are so many other kinds of porn. Erica Lust is a wonderful example um, of feminist porn. And hers is definitely like not about the penetration. It's not about, um, you know, everything revolves around the penis. It's about a more personal connection between the performers. She has a lot of like queer performers on there, people of different body size, different ethnicities, sexual preferences, like looks like all that. It's like a big mixed bag there. So, you know, there's, there really is porn for everyone. I just think it's hard for people to find because, you know, I mean, the adult industry is so stigmatized and porn is so stigmatized. If you're just like a regular person who wants to find porn that might appeal to you, like, where are you going to go look? You're going to go look on Pornhub? Like, that's not going to give you, you know, the right kind of like information about what you, if you don't want to see like the typical, you know, browsers, penis penetration kind of scene. So, you know, I think it's important that, you know, podcasts like ours um, <laughs> can help like the average per- inform the average person that like there is a lot out there like whatever you're into somebody makes porn for you um it's just it can be hard to find and I wish there was a way to make it easier for people but you know yeah people are generally informed by the mainstream media and the mainstream media doesn't talk about porn so like where do they go for this info Yeah. Well, and it's also, it's an interesting echo chamber uh, because the vast majority of mainstream porn producers, like you mentioned, MindGeek, are white men. And a lot of the content is being produced and generated for white men. And there's this weird echo chamber. Like, are people really that into stepdaughter, stepdad fucking scenes? Or is that just all of what's there? And so then it becomes what's on your mind. Like there's a, there's a weird algorithmic effect when you have people uh, studying data because there's a chicken and egg phenomenon of they put some stuff out, they get feedback and then it loops itself. And so I've always wondered like if they chose to do different shit, would that different stuff then be amplified? Um, which is kind of an interesting, you know, scenario. Yeah. But I think that a problem is that, you know, men who have sex with women say, watch this porn and then think that this is what real life is like, which is kind of part of what this episode is about, which is that's not true. And part of what's missing is the, is women deciding what the scenes are. Because if you have, you know, hetero men or men who have sex with women making the decisions, you know, up, up here at the top, then you, you have women in scenes and you think that, oh, she's really enjoying that, but she's paid to to enjoy that, right? She's, she's paid to look like she's enjoying that. So there's Mm -hmm. a, there's a strange effect that makes it seem like this thing that you're doing is pleasurable. For example, say, uh, fingering her right away just right away, not a lot of warm up. just getting right to that. In real life, that hurts. It mm-hmm. hurts me personally. I've seen it in my sex research. And yet- I it, actually, I personally hate being fingered. Yeah, a lot of I women- I really don't like it. I also think like a lot of women have only been fingered poorly. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I was just reflecting on this the other day that I think I'm lucky in that I, I had some sexual experiences early on that were very good. And, but the vast majority of, of experiences I've had with men, they don't know how to use their fingers and they don't know how to use their mouths. So when you have oral sex, say that's not good. You just think oral sex isn't good. You're like, Oh, I just Mm -hmm. don't like it when a man goes down on me. That might not actually be true. It might just be the way the men that have gone down on you have done it. And so anyway, my point is I do think it's really important for, you know, Erica lust and um, other porn houses for men who have sex with women that want to know what women actually enjoy to branch out beyond just the mainstream sites, because 
there's a lot to be learned. And it's, it's a, it's a little bit like in the film industry, not adult film, but film industry, many, many, many of the producers and directors are white men, but there are women in the movies. So you think, oh, this is how women are, but you forget this is a man writing these lines. This is, you know, right. there's, there's someone behind the camera. There's someone behind them, you know, as a writer, there's, there's other people involved that you do, that you're not seeing that you forget are, are there. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious in, if you could touch on that a little bit in terms of the difference between porn and real life. Can you t- talk a little bit about, yeah, sort of female turn on and your experience, you know, shooting scenes, say something like that of fingering that maybe the woman performer was like, yeah, that doesn't actually feel that good, but I'm enthused because I'm on camera. Like, how does that translate? Oh, I mean, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a performance and um, it's funny because sometimes, you know, I'll see girls like masturbate furiously and like slap their clit. And I'm like, no one likes that. You know, I'm digging in my head. I'm like, nobody actually likes that, but like, it's, it's like over the top and it's, you know, it's this whole, it's this whole fantasy and, you know, this, this, the idea of this like insatiable woman who can't get enough that, you know, she just needs her vagina to be like attacked in this really aggressive way. (laughs) Um, But I mean, you know, for example, a lot of times women, especially if they're doing anal, um, they will bring, well, first of all, they'll bring several butt plugs of various sizes and they'll warm up by putting the smaller one in and then the bigger one in and then the bigger one in. Um, and they'll also bring a vibrator. So they'll bring a vibrator to help like stimulate them so that they get wet and then their, their orifices open up a little bit better and it's easier to take the penis. So there's like all of these things that they do like behind the scenes and obviously like lots of lube, which we never film. We never film them like reapplying lube. Like I just shot an anal scene with Cherie DeVille for browsers a couple of weeks ago. And like, we were stopping to put lube on like a lot because you know, it's, it's anal, but it just like in the final edit, it just looks like she's so incredibly turned on by sucking this guy's penis that like, you can just pop your dick right in there. And like, she's ready to go just nonstop, no breaks, nothing like that. And it's just, um, that's not, you know, generally that's how not it real life. That's not real yeah. life. I think there's so many good things in what you just said. And I, I've had multiple men, like one of my old boyfriends, this is how he communicated about anal sex. Can I stick it in your ass? And I was like, okay, first of all, no, uh, like not like that. Like this yeah. needs to be a conversation. And also I would need warm up exactly like what you said, right? Like like people who have anal sex do use butt plugs and there's a reason that they do that. Like the, I, I think it's such a good example of making it look like something that just doesn't happen in real life. Like that's just not how anal sex works. Like most of the people I know that have anal sex on a regular basis, they douche beforehand. Like there's prep work. There's, there's all this stuff that goes into it. That, they stop eating the day before. Right. I know people who stop yeah. eating. Before. Like there's so much that goes into it that is not shown on porn. And so people like my boyfriend are like, can I stick it in your ass? I'm like, yo, this would take so much more than just that. Like, I'm not a no to doing that act, but I'm a no to like, just casually you sticking it in right now. With Like, no. <laughs> That's surprise, surprise anal. Surprise Nobody likes surprise anal. <laughs> thing. So I just, I really, um, appreciate what you said too, about breaks, taking breaks, like lubricant, like you, you know, out of curiosity, you know, was that a, um, was that one of the times that a safe word was used or would she like go like this, you know, I'm doing the the timeout signal. Like how did the performer sort of call for like, Oh, need a break, like more lube. Cause she's not going to say out loud more lube, right. That's going to Sort of. um, she'll say, she'll say cut and okay. then, you know, we'll, we'll cut and, and, and we'll do more lube or, um, you know, sometimes we have to cut because we need to move a light or something like that. And then whenever that happens, I'm always like, especially if I'm shooting an anal seat, I'm automatically like, do you want more lube? Cause the answer is almost always yes. Um, do you want more lube? Do you want any water? Like those are like the two questions that I ask all the time. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, it was Cherie Deville who's, who's a, veteran and, um, you know, 
isn't shy about calling cut, which, you know, is not a problem. And one of the things that I tell the girls before we start, I'm like, you can call cut at any time for any reason. Like it's not a problem. Um, so, so yeah. So the safe word thing is kind of almost everybody picks cut because, you know, I think safe words more for like BDSM because, you know, if you're doing like a consensual and non-consent scene, um, where the word no or stop is part of the play, then you need to make sure that you have a word that's that like pineapple, that it's not organic to the scene to make sure that, you know, people understand, oh, okay, she actually really means stop now. So, right. but in, in our line of, of work, it's almost, they almost always just pick cut because like, if someone says cut, I'm going to stop. Sure. What other, um, any other sort of, obvious ones that come to mind in terms of the difference between porn and real life? Um, let's see. Yeah. I mean, you know, just that these people are performers and they're professionals and this is what they do for a living. So, you know, the fact that these guys can keep their dicks hard for long periods of time is partially because they're experienced and this is what they do for a living. And, you know, partially a lot of them take Viagra or other, other, um, you know, medications to keep them going. But, you know, being a male performer is one of the most difficult jobs. And I get DMS all the time from guys who are like, I could do porn. I have a big dick. I love pussy. And I'm like, "Mm, you have no idea. (laughs) It's, I can't tell you how many guys like fail out of porn school, you know, guys come in, they want to be a porn star. They're good looking. They have a nice size penis. They're like, why not? But then when they are actually faced, you know, with the, the job, you have to stay hard for long periods of time. You have to know how to open up to camera to position the girls so that we can see everything. Um, You need to be able to come on cue, which is fucking hard. Like that is one of the most difficult things. Like, okay, we're done. Like you need to come now, you know, like some, you know, if you take even 10 minutes to come, like that's too long. Like, you know, people expect you to be able to do it in a couple of minutes, which is crazy. So, you know, it's, it's what we expect from performers to be honest is so unrealistic. And it's the same, you know, if you think about like Olympic athletes, what Olympic athletes are able to do is so unrealistic for most people, but that's why they're Olympic athletes. And that's why they're at the top of their game in, you know, whatever their um, sport is. And it's the same with porn. Most people cannot do that job. It doesn't mean that like, you're not good at sex or, you know, you can't make somebody really happy in bed. It just, you know, means that you're not cut out for this incredibly challenging job that most people can't do. Yeah, that's such a good point. And that's, I think that gap between what, you know, because even if you intellectually grasp that porn is not realistic, I think that if you're consuming a lot of it, if you're watching a lot of it, it does become ingrained and you do think that you should be able to do what you see or, or have done to you what you see, you know, like that, that it's normal what you're seeing. And, um, that I think as a, as a woman who has sex with men, that's one of the things that I find unrealistic is the length of time for her to get turned on. It's like 30 to 60 seconds. Like they're all of a sudden doing sex acts that I'm like, that's not realistic. Like if you actually yeah. want her to be wet at that point, if you, right. you actually want this to be pleasurable for her, that's not realistic what you're seeing. But, you know, you know, and I was going to ask you about this quickly is uh, I think people are generally familiar with the term fluffers, that there are human beings on set that help performers get more turned on so that they can do the scene. I heard the other day that fluffers are no longer employed on sets. Can you I'm just curious. Can you clarify? Are there, is that still happening? Oh no. Okay. Oh no, 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 no. And to be honest, like I always thought it was kind of a myth because I have never seen that in my life. Um, you know, I started working in the adult industry in 1998, I think. Um, and it wasn't 1998. I graduated high school in 96, 1998, 1999. Um, 
And I always thought it was kind of a myth, but actually it was funny. I was talking to my dad the other day about fluffers back in the seventies. And he was like, Oh yeah. He was like, yeah, you know, we had fluffers sometimes. I was like, well, who, who are these people? Like, you know, that would just give blowjobs to the guys in between scenes. He was like, they were generally the, the, the women that weren't attractive enough to get the main starring roles. And I was like, Oh my God, that's so sad. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't feel good. No, it doesn't. Feel but good. I'm, yeah. But I mean the fluff, I don't know. The fluffer now is like the fact that you can like watch porn on your phone. If a guy is struggling often, he'll go to the bathroom. Well, that's interesting. I was also watch porn. Say, I wonder if also to your point that, that the modern day fluffers are Viagra or other yeah. drugs because you totally didn't ever have those. There was yeah. no, you know, it's like Ritalin for, for studying, not exactly, but if you didn't have that choice, then you might need other stimuli. But if you yeah. have that available to you, I would, you know, I mean, do you have a rough estimate of how many of the male performers are taking something to be able to stay hard for a long time? I would say probably 90%. 90%. Oh, wow. I, I don't so. know you're going to say half. Yeah. That's, I hope. I think, I mean, it depends on like, if you're talking about all like, you know, there's like the established male talent. There's like, you know, the top 10 guys. Most of them probably aren't. Um, I can't say for sure, but I would say all the younger, newer male talent are. A lot of times they don't tell you. Um, they'll say like, let me know when we're going to start. Give me a 30 minute window. When they say that to me, I'm like, oh, okay, because that's because you got to take something. You don't, he's not going to tell me outright. It's fine. I understand. Some people, some guys will be like, hey, I got my Viagra. I got to take it 30 minutes before. Can you let me know? I'll be like, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, again, we are asking ridiculous things of these people. So if you need a little blue pill to help you finish the job, like I am not going to judge you for it. And I would imagine that that is detrimental to that performer's health long time. I, I don't imagine that taking that much Viagra that frequently could possibly be good for you. Do you have any, I'm curious. I mean, we don't even oh, yeah. have the longitudinal studies on that yet to know, but do you have any anecdotal evidence? I do. I do know a couple of male performers who have said that, you know, taking, taking that over a long period of time um, has definitely uh, affected their ability to perform. Um, the caverjack is the biggest problem. And that's when guys inject their penis with this, this substance that helps them stay hard. And it's actually caused such problems in such men, in certain men. I talked about this in my podcast with Lena Paul, actually, um, because somehow I didn't know about this, but she told me about it, that some guys have had to have like a penis pump installed. So they essentially have a robotic penis because it doesn't really work anymore because it's been so like, you know, basically destroyed by this, this, the stuff that they inject into their penis. And so now they have, and there's like a button that's like kind of hidden in their groin. They can push and it like fills it with, with blood. And then it gets, yeah, I know it's wow. crazy. I know. And I, was, I had the same expression when she told me, I'm like, wait, this exists. And you know, I don't know. I just didn't know, which is crazy that I didn't know, but now I do. Collagen being injected into the penis. It's probably not collagen. It's some kind of chemical or something that originally. Yeah. I don't know the specific, yeah, I don't know the specifics of it, um, but. Uh, There's another difference between, <laughs> an unexpected difference between porn and real life. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So as we're wrapping up here, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if there's, if there's anything we missed specifically that you would, you would want a man to know that's watching, that's watching porn, you know, a difference between that and real life that might settle his nerve you know I mean for me like confidence is the biggest thing um which I know is hard you know it's hard to just like automatically have confidence unless you know things happen in your life that give you confidence but there was an ex-boyfriend that I had who you know was not somebody who I would typically like if I saw him on tinder right I would never swipe right I met him in, a, in another uh circumstance but he was short slightly pudgy balding very like normal size penis you know um very average and I was so attracted to him and we had such great sex simply because he was just super confident and I feel like women were just really and I think men too 
we're just attracted to confidence. You know, we, people who feel good about themselves put out that kind of vibe and you like want, you want to be around that, you know, it's infectious and um, you want to be with somebody who, who feels good about themselves. And so, you know, I would just say that, you know, just, just work on yourself and and your self-esteem and, um, you know, women will, will gravitate to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious since you did bring up someone that you've been with, I would imagine that you have put up with a lot of nonsense in your life in terms of your profession and dating. How does that, how has that worked for you? Do you, you know, even I, I'm not in the adult industry. I'm a sex and relationship coach, but I will sometimes avoid profession swapping with people for a while because I don't want to deal with that yet. Yeah. Do that as well. Like, how does that work for you? Luckily it hasn't been that big of an issue for me. I did have one guy that I was dating who was like, after, you know, we went out a few times was like, Hey, do you think you could introduce me to Sasha Gray? And I was like, I'm never calling you again. Um, but for the most part, because my personal life is actually pretty separate from the adult industry. Most of my friends have nothing to do with the adult industry. I definitely have a couple of friends in the industry, but, but a lot of them are not. And so, you know, a lot of these guys that I've met are outside of the porn bubble. So they don't even know what I do when I first meet them. You know, the couple of times I've been on dating apps, I don't say what I do for a living. And I'm not somebody that people recognize. You know, I'm not super famous. People don't really know my face. And so, you know, people aren't going to recognize me on Tinder like they might like a famous porn star. So honestly, like in general, um, hasn't really been an issue for me. And, you know, my current husband, like just he doesn't he cares about my job in so much as like he wants me to be happy and feel fulfilled by my career but he doesn't actually care about like what I do for a living. Like he has no like interest in meeting porn stars, going to set, like, you know, so I've been, I've been lucky. Yeah. I I think that's, that's admirable. I wonder, you know, when people do find out, have you had any, any friction or weirdness or have they had expectations that you will, for example, fuck like a porn star because you're a director? Like what, what, what happens when they do, find out or I think yeah I think um you know I've been fortunate and I think it's unfortunately because I'm a woman um you know in general guys like when they find out what I do for a living it's like cool whereas like I know other male directors have a really hard time dating like normal women because when they find out that they work in porn they're like you know like what does that say about who you are they get jealous about them being around all these naked girls um but yeah, I haven't really had, it's, it's strange. Like sometimes I, I think about like how it's weird that I haven't really had all of those issues. Um, but I think I just, uh, I'm, I'm kind of like good at, I have a, I think I have a good radar and I'm pretty good at picking out guys. Like I know who's creepy and who has ulterior motives. I'm really attracted to like well-rounded, stable, nice guys. Like <laughs> that's what I'm into. I love that's such a vanilla kink. It's great. It's great. Like I love vanilla guys. It's awesome. Oh, that's a perfect place to wrap. Um, so if people are interested in watching your videos, do you have any sort of favorites that you've done or where do they find your work and, and you and your podcast? Yeah, you can go to hollyrandall.com. That's obviously where all the stuff that I produce for myself is. Um, like I said, I shoot, uh, for, I shoot all the twisties treat of the month, uh, videos. So that's like their girl of the month. So all that stuff's mine for the last few years. Um, I shoot some showcases for browsers. So just, they're kind of like big, like contract star, these cinematic showcases. This thing they just started doing. They've only released a few of them. Um, but, uh, I've shot a few movies for wicked that I'm pretty proud of. Um, finding Rebecca was a good one. Um, uh, Stranger Than Fiction was another one. So yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I've shot a lot of really great stuff over the years. It's hard to remember it all, but, um, it's, it's all, it's out there. (laughs) And then how about your podcast? 
So my podcast is Holly Randall Unfiltered, and you can find that on all podcast channels. And I also have a YouTube channel because I videotape all of my interviews and they are all up at youtube.com slash Holly Randall Unfiltered. Hey guys, I mentioned my sex research a few times during this episode and just wanted to remind you that I actually have a streaming course available based on my sex research called Please Her in Bed, a course for men designed by women. You can find that on my website, melaniecurtain.com under courses. And if you use promo code DEARMEN, that's all one word, DEARMEN, you will get the course dropped from $97 to $69.